0: listeners if you're hearing this i guess that means you listen to the show which is surprising because i don't promote it uh as some of you might know wasteland's a bit of a labor of love for me it's just me doing the scripting and the recording and all of that but i spend most of my time doing my uh, weekly podcast i don't want to hear it uh since the last time i've posted any wasteland episodes i've written a book and published that so i've been a bit occupied however i have been talking for about a year uh very sporadically on instagram uh and 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 on my other show about season two of wasteland and what it will consist of one single case a case that when i really began to dig into it just utterly fascinated me and it's a case that i've never heard anybody else talk about uh so of course me being me Ridden with anxiety over here, i, uh, I of course am like, uh, before I get the chance to actually script it and record it, somebody else will beat me to the punch because that seems to be what always happens. However, I have begun scripting it, and rather than give another update on uh, what it will be about, I thought maybe I could just share some of it with you. So what you're about to hear is the beginning of the first episode of Wasteland season 2 the entirety of the series will drop all at once and i would say a early estimate will be around thanksgiving time but it will be done before the end of the year and if you would like to keep up and you would like to come back and listen to the rest of the show as i hope you you will uh please follow me at wasteland pod and at m.paul.anthony on instagram i generally update both with the same things at the moment. But once I get more going on the second season of Wasteland, beyond the outlining and the scripting, once I actually start recording for real, I'll definitely be updating the Wasteland Instagram just a bit more. But I would appreciate if you'd check out the other things I'm working on and also at uh, I Don't Want to Hear It pod on Instagram as well. It's the show that I do every week with my best friend and former bandmate, Shane Spiker, Dr. Shane Spiker, excuse me. I don't think they've taken that title from him yet. Without further ado, here is the beginning of episode one, Wasteland season two, tentatively titled Roach Haven. April 27th, 1973. Main Street, Daytona Beach, Florida. 17 year old Ross Michael Cochran was troubled. As he made his way through the just awakening Main Street morning, he had time to think about what happened to him the previous night. Just outside the boardwalk arcade he was employed at, he had been suddenly jumped by a former classmate named Kenneth Francis, also 17. The other boy had accosted him just outside and had angrily chased him down the beach, striking him several times. Ross, who liked to go by Mike, wasn't much of a fighter. He took the beating and then took the advice of his attacker to go on. Ken didn't look right anyway, he was probably high, as he often was, so Mike left. Mike had a good idea of why Ken was upset with him, why he and his group of friends seemed to have it out for him, but it hadn't been Mike's idea to get involved with that whole trial business. They seemed to blame him anyway, especially Ken. Though his actual destination is lost to time, that morning, Mike was probably headed back to the boarding house that he'd been living at for the last two weeks, just a block south of Maine on Coates Street. Mike was rooming with landlady Delphine Guillemette's son, George, and the two had hit it off admirably. Hitting it off with someone wasn't always easy for Mike. Originally from Fresno, California, Mike had relocated to central Florida when he was about 16 years old. His family was concerned with the boy's difficult emotional state. Coupled with an unidentified learning disability, Mike's family had seen fit to enroll him in the Green Valley School, an institution for troubled youth. Located in Orange City, about a 40 minute drive west from Daytona's beachside. But George seemed to like him well enough, despite the fact that Mike often seemed a little lost and disturbed, possibly due to being so far away from his family. Of course, the same couldn't be said of Ken Francis and his group of friends. They accosted him every chance they got. So it is odd that as Mike headed down Main Street, rather than turning south and heading home to the Coate Street boarding house, He instead walked in the opposite direction, arriving at 27 North Grandview Avenue at around 10.30 that morning. Differing accounts say he ran into some acquaintances and followed them, while others aren't so specific. Regardless of how or why he wound up where he did, the result was, unfortunately, the same. 27 North Grandview was coincidentally also a boarding house, though the locals had another name for it, Roach Haven. It was regarded as a place to flop, a drug pad, a squalid place where narcotics could sometimes be purchased but always indulged in. There were also the rumors of what went on down in the basement. Some claimed a group of kids conducted rituals down there, black magic. Others maintained that a coven of witches cast spells and curses from beneath the North Grandview house. It was neither a comfortable nor inviting place as far as Mike was concerned. But despite the house's unsavory reputation, that morning Mike found himself on the front stoop. He knocked on the door, was led in, and headed upstairs to the second-floor apartment, which was where Ken Francis, surrounded by several of his friends, was just shaking off an acid trip. Having regained some semblance of normalcy, Ken instantly recognized Mike. And at that moment, Mike knew he had made a grave mistake coming to Roach Haven that morning. I discovered the strange case of Ross Michael Cochran in the most unlikely of ways. Specifically, my mom told me about it. And my mom doesn't usually discuss things of a darker nature like this. I would attribute that to her lapsed Catholicism and Jewish conversion. Like most devoutly religious people, she's always had a streak of superstition. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I believe superstition is often a good survival tactic. At least that's what horror movies have taught me. But truth be told, my mom gets upset with me if I bring up anything morbid, and growing up playing in punk rock and metal bands, mainlining a constant stream of the aforementioned horror movies, and overdosing on true crime books, she was often quite upset with me. Still, when I mentioned that I was mulling over topics for another season of this infrequently updated show, and she blurted out something about the witchcraft murder, I stopped in my tracks. Of course, she didn't know all the details, just a few of the more sensational ones. After all, the crime took place in the early 1970s when she was only a teenager. She'd been in Florida for a few years after moving down from Connecticut and she was preoccupied with finishing high school, and then she met my dad. When I asked her why she'd never mentioned it to me before, she said it was just too terrible to talk about. Well, with that glowing endorsement and a provocative name like the witchcraft murder, naturally, I started digging immediately. And just as quickly, Google returned to me a single article from a small out of state newspaper. Basic details, nothing more. There was nothing else of any substantial value. No Wikipedia, no Murderpedia, no article from a larger publication, no podcasts, no YouTube videos of questionable quality. There was almost nothing. Which was a problem. I'm not a reporter. Sure, I've done a little freelance journalism, I've written two books. And aside from this show, I put most of my creative energy into the other podcast I do with my best friend called I Don't Want to Hear It, new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcast. So I didn't have any immediate means to acquire information, nothing on the internet and no sources I could contact. And I certainly didn't have the means to hire a private investigator, not that the situation even warranted that. So I turned to the only resource that was available to me, the public library. I'll admit my inner rust coal started to come to the surface when I sat down at the microfiche machine. I knew when the crime had occurred, so I asked the librarian for the corresponding role from the local papers of the day. I started shuttling back through time and instantly felt like I was uncovering some hidden conspiracy, some sort of esoteric crime that had been lost to time. Then, after about 10 minutes, the librarian came back and informed me everything was now online and a freely accessible news archive that I could access from home. I didn't need to feverishly work the microfiche machine in a darkened corner of the library. I could search from the comfort of my apartment. Feeling a little let down that I wouldn't have my Detective Somerset moment, I returned home and promptly spent the next eight hours clipping articles from the early 60s through the 1990s. And that was only the first day. Soon there were notebooks and binders filled with printed articles and court transcripts piled on my kitchen table. I bought highlighters and dividers. When things became unwieldy, I bought a corkboard. Certain names kept popping up, so I decided to attempt contacting a few of them. I managed to meet with a prominent attorney involved in the case only a week into my research, but I was surprised to find out I had just as much information as he did. He hinted that he had a veritable treasure trove of material on the case somewhere in his garage. It never surfaced. Next, I emailed the uncle of the primary victim in the case after coming across his email connected to a family tree I found on the internet archive. He corresponded with me for a bit, but assured me that the immediate family would not be open to speaking about the crime. At any rate, I didn't have their contact information, so it was a dead end. A friend put me in contact with a former Main Street business owner whose shop was once located right around the corner from the scene of the now 50-year-old crime. The conversation never really got past the triviality stage, though he assured me after he'd had some time to think, we'd talk the following week. And after repeated calls, texts, and voicemails, he never answered me again. I even discovered that one of the most pivotal characters in this case was actually the best friend of my uncle. He was incarcerated about 20 minutes from my home. Not being allowed to simply stop by for a visit without prior approval, I wrote him twice. He never responded. With all this resistance, it would have been very easy for me to assume that I was brushing up against some unfathomable darkness that didn't want to be illuminated. Admittedly, I've consumed enough documentaries and podcasts about cults and conspiracies, and the words witchcraft and cult dominated the early news stories about this case. But I soon realized, even despite the sprawl of the case as I would eventually understand it, there was no real secret here. Nothing had been hidden, at least intentionally. No, the simple fact was that everybody had simply forgotten. The ones that hadn't weren't reluctant to speak with me for any particular reason. They just didn't seem to care anymore, and with a 50-year time gap, most of the people involved in the events of this case were dead. Of course, I have my theory on why Ross Michael Cochran died, and you'll hear it eventually but it's nothing more than a theory. There isn't a mystery to solve here. Which is fine, as I've never been good at solving mysteries or decoding puzzles. One thing I am good at, however, is telling stories. And no one's told this one yet.